Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, January 29th, we're studying Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 34. Jesus tells two more parables, one that is even unique to St. Mark. Two images can be used to talk about the kingdom of God. First, we have a seed that grows, even though the farmer doesn't know how. And then we've got a small mustard seed that grows into a large garden plant and provides a home for many different birds. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, the Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz. Dr. Kuntz serves as assistant professor of exegetical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Kuntz, welcome back to Sharper Iron. It's great to be with you. Thank you for having me. So, Dr. Kins, let's start just by talking a little bit about what is a parable. You teach on the Synoptic Gospels there in Fort Wayne. When you talk about parables in class with pastors-to-be, what do you what do you teach them? We're teaching that it is a way, really broadly, of portraying God's kingdom or some part of God's kingdom in a story form it usually has the purpose of illustrating or clarifying some way that God's kingdom works or some effect that it has on believers or unbelievers. Sometimes the parables confuse people. So the purpose of a parable you have to figure out from the context, but a parable generally is something that's going to be a story that's going to tell you something or a lot of things about how God's kingdom is and how it works. So with the context that we've got here in Mark, you said the purpose sometimes depends on the context. It seems from the context you've got some of both going on, that for some people it's clarifying, for some people it's confusing. What is in this context of Mark chapter 4 that will help us with the verses we've got today? Yeah, so you have some parables that are going to be confusing, and then there are some that clarify, and I think our parable does illuminate or clarify a little bit, but even besides the parable, there's what Mark is going to call explanation, or in other places in his gospel, teaching. And that would be something more like, if your listeners are familiar, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7 is a really long, connected passage of Jesus's teaching. So a parable is good, but it is not the only form of teaching that Jesus does. Sometimes Jesus teaches in a straightforward way, the way we do on this show, and that makes things even clearer than a parable does. So we've got two parables for our consideration today. We are in Mark chapter 4, beginning at verse 26. Go ahead and read it, because I think reading the parable will help us connect it to the context. Jesus said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. 
And he said, With what shall we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that all the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. That is the text for today, Mark 4, verses 26 through 34. Dr. Kuntz, the first parable that we get from Jesus is unique to the Gospel of St. Mark. He's the only one that records this for us, but he uses imagery that's very familiar to us from the synoptics and from this very chapter. We're talking about a man scattering seed on the ground. Sounds a lot like the parable of the sower. Is this the same parable told differently? How do those two relate to each other? So this parable is like the parable of the sower, which you got uh, a little bit earlier in this very same chapter of Mark, and also in Matthew 13, among others. But it's not the same parable, because it does give you something unique, a unique insight into the kingdom that the parable of the sower doesn't quite give you. The parable of the sower is very interested in people's responses to the Word of God, how they work, uh, what are some of the obstacles to faith, and the fact that the faithful bear fruit in different measures, 30, 60, 100-fold, just depends. Uh, Germans, in fact, call the parable of the sower the parable of the fourfold soil, and in some ways that's a little bit clearer about that parable, because this one is more about the experience of the sower. Not really about the soil. It doesn't tell you about the soil. In fact, the soil is kind of a mysterious place. Uh, This is like me being a beginning gardener and not knowing enough about soil mixtures. And so some things are going great and some things are not going great. And I don't really know how or why. And there's a mystery here about growth. Not that growth is not mysterious in the parable of the sower, But the focus in this parable is really on the fact that it just happens. There's even uh, a Greek uh, adverb that sounds a lot like our word automatic. You know, we would say it happened automatically. And that's how the growth is happening in this parable. So uh, it's a a very different focus in a way because it, it captures the surprise of growth in God's kingdom. If the parable of the sower is trying to tell you, okay, well, here's why people respond in different ways. You know, sometimes Satan is coming along. Sometimes riches are catching them up. Sometimes persecution is too much for them. They got to drop out. This one is telling you, you know, there's going to be growth. Uh, Things are going to happen. It's going to grow like I said it would, uh, but you're not really going to understand how that's happening. (laughs) <laughs> and so, I mean, I, I love this parable because it is completely a person's experience of working in the Lord's harvest field is you're preaching, you're scattering the seed and who knows what's going to happen. It's, it's always surprising. It's, it's kind of gloriously mysterious. That's, that is quite true. There is, there's a, a lot that a, a pastor can relate to in a, a text like this that you do, you, you sow the seed of the word and then I mean, it happens, and and I I, I can recall multiple 
times in my ministry where I I did not expect someone to hear and believe, <laughs> and and then I spoke the word and they did, <laughs> and like wow, <laughs> uh, uh, wow, yeah. and, and and always always to my to my shame in those instances because the Lord promises that his word will do the work, which I think maybe that's a good bridge into some Old Testament background. One of the places that this text brings to mind from the Old Testament for me is from Isaiah 55, where you get that passage about the rain and the snow falling and causing the ground to bring forth. Not exactly the same same language, but similar idea that when the, when the word goes forth, things grow, and that's not up to you, that's up to God. Right. Right, exactly. Because the, the whole burden of the message in Isaiah 55 is that what the Lord does is not only done, it is well done. And that his word is fruitful, that it doesn't return to him void. I think what is particularly interesting about the parable is that it takes that very clear lesson and applies it in a very Mark kind of way, because Mark doesn't, unlike Matthew, spell everything out for you. You know, Matthew will tell you this happened and it was to fulfill this specific scripture I'm about to cite. Mark makes you wait and you have to follow the story and he doesn't give everything away. And so, you know, the, the, the seller in this parable is really in the same situation as somebody listening to or reading Mark's gospel, because he's not going to lay it all out for you. And when it does play out, you're probably not even going to understand exactly how it happened. You just can see that it did happen that way. Mm. So I, I, I really like that. And I think that's, that's, that's what's so distinctive about this parable that you find only in this gospel. Mm. How much of this parable do we want to assign a meaning to? I mean, sometimes, well, Jesus does this with the parable of the sower, where he tells you, this is what the seed is, this is what this soil is, that's what this soil, and so forth. How much of right. this parable should we do that for? I mean, are, are we going to try to find, okay, the the man who's scattering the seed is this, the sleeping and rising is this? How do we want to handle that with this parable? Yeah, I, I, I'm reluctant to press on things that don't have a fairly plain meaning where Jesus doesn't explain them, because then you get into allegory, and the problem with allegory is not that it's not fun, it's that it's not necessarily true. And when you're preaching or teaching or teaching your kids at home, you don't want to tell them things that aren't necessarily true when you're talking about the Bible. Um, so what I can observe in the details and the details that Jesus does give is that you have immediately after he just talked about the parable of the sower mentioned now again of someone scattering seed. I think it's safe to say that Jesus is not telling a parable about gardening, but about the way that God's kingdom works and the seed would be the word of God. Right. But the differences are that here it's much more focused. It's as if the sower in the earlier parable is now just looking at the seed that actually is fruitful. And what's kind of fun is that as he's looking at it, he's noting the stages of growth, and we get them kind of flash past us. Um, and so there's, there's this weird thing going on with time that is, I think, helpful to understand about the kingdom. That is that the labor is not recorded in the parable. So 
hoeing, uh, you know, making sure that everything is growing, watering, if he needs to do that, if he can do that. None of his labor is mentioned such that the growth, and I, I think anybody that, that does garden or farm will understand this, the growth does have something mysterious about it, even when you do labor. It, it's remarkable to watch. And so what you get is this like time lapse on the sower's life. He goes to bed and he wakes up, he goes to bed and he wakes up, he goes to bed and he wakes up. And so you, you can, you know, you're speeding through, let's say two weeks of life in 20 seconds of video. But the thing that he does slow down as he tells the story is the story of growth. So if you're getting a time lapse on the laborer's life, on the sower's life, you're getting concentration on first it was this, and then it got bigger, and then it was bigger, and then it was ready. And so you don't have to look for sort of a mystical meaning, like, is the blade like the day that you become a Christian? Or You know what I mean? Like, right. you don't have to do that, because what you can see is, on the one hand, my labor is kind of irrelevant. I go to bed, I wake up, I go to bed, I wake up. I'm a farmer. I mean, presumably I'm doing something, but it really doesn't matter. What matters is that automatically on its own, this powerful, mighty word is producing these stages of growth with a promise of fullness at the end. And, and it's, but at the same time, we wouldn't say that the, that the work is unimportant or that no. the work or that this parable gives, gives the one who is a student of the word or a proclaimer of the word, some sort of excuse to be lazy. And the, the, <laughs> right. the, the other passage right. that comes to mind is where Paul talks in first Corinthians three about his role. And, and the role of yep. Apollos, you know, he, he, this is in first Corinthians three, oh, beginning at verse one, he says, I planted Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So, I mean, the labor is important, but as you said, it's, it's irrelevant as to who does it. The point is God's the one who's doing the growth. Right. He's the one right. active but still do the work. I mean, it's not an excuse to be lazy. The work's important, but God's the one who does it. I mean, those two things right. go together in sort of a mysterious way for the pastor, for the Christian, whoever you may be, that I'm reading the word, but God's producing the growth. And it really is just this mysterious and wonderful experience. And when you put the the emphasis on the fact that God gives the growth, boy, that just really adds to the joy of it all too, I think. Right. Right, right. And, and no one parable is really capturing everything that you need to know about the kingdom of God, which is why I think there are so many, even in a single gospel. Because you could take this, you can say, well, you know, hey, you know, I, I, uh, I mean, it, misreading this parable would be to confirm what people suspect about pastors, which is they only work one day a week, <laughs> right? <laughs> so you have to be clear that there's other things going on in the kingdom of God, but here— you're capturing the mystery and the wonder of that growth that is due solely to God's word. Mm, right. And, and, and any pastor will tell you that experience. And I think even in our lives as Christians, we see it as well. You know, even if yeah. this, this not like this parable is only for the proclaimer, but it is for the one who, who hears and who, who reads and who listens to the word that God is providing that growth often in ways that it, suddenly you, you know, you wake up one morning, you're like, Oh, Wow. I mean, I, I have moments like that yeah. just on this program yeah. where 
yeah. I'll be talking to one guest and I'll be recalling something that I learned that I, I really had forgotten I'd learned. And yet it was there. The Lord was providing that growth. And again, it's, it's at those moments, it is a humbling thing. Wow. You know, the Lord was at work even when I didn't realize it. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, 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 and some of it is like, well, it, it shouldn't be surprising, but I mean, it still is wondrous when you see it. I mean, the other last week, my three-year-old said that someday he's going to die and, and, and be in heaven with Jesus and all the angels. I mean, yeah. he goes to a lot of church, right? He's, he's my three-year-old. So there, there, there are explanations for these things, but it's still really amazing to hear a three-year-old say something like that, yeah. you know? Um, so the wonder is still there, even when there's plenty of labor as well. That's right. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm sure parents, uh, Christian parents across the world can, can recount similar stories and it really is a, a fantastic thing to experience uh, that work that God is doing through his word. Now, one of the things, Pastor Philpeck, a lot of the parallel passages that we're bringing to bear have the same theme of agriculture, of farming. Why is it that Jesus makes use of that image in his preaching? Why do we see that throughout the scriptures so often? Yeah, there's kind of two sides to this. One is that Jesus is, is a country boy. I mean, he really is. His, his job, uh, technically in Greek is not just working with wood. It's, it's somebody who's good at designing buildings and maybe helping people they put up a barn, a structure they don't they don't make themselves or on their own or do every day. That's what a tectonos does. So he's good with wood, but he's also good with stone and stuff. But he's he he grows up in a rural environment. That's his world. His world is not fishing and it's not being a priest or something. It's a, it's a rural agricultural setting really for his entire life and, and, and most of his ministry as well, if you look at the gospel. In addition to that, there's also something a little bit more significant than, than simply Jesus's experiences. Um, and that is something that you get, for instance, in James, where James chastises people for being impatient. And those people are the ancient equivalents of like businessmen. So things work in that world by virtue of how I organize my time and how that, that organization of time will get me to make money as I trade things. Those are the merchants who are traveling in James chapter four. The way that James portrays a faithful man is in farming terms, right? The patient farmer waits for the early and the latter rain, the two rainy seasons in ancient Israel. So there is something here where the kingdom of God doesn't work by virtue of my planning or my organization or my, you know, trading uh, futures contracts or it, anything like that. It doesn't work by virtue of my, my sheer diligence and uh, organization of time. It works in a mysterious agricultural way. So there's both Jesus's background, but there's also something about the kingdom of God that requires us to be much more like farmers or gardeners than like businessmen, because I have to be patient. And ultimately everything I'm doing is dependent for a farmer on the weather. <laughs> you know, he can have modern, he can have modern machinery and, uh, you know, amazing seeds that were engineered to be resistant to this, that, or the other thing. If the weather doesn't cooperate, he doesn't have a crop. And so, uh, there's something deeply true about the kingdom of God that is true in terms of requiring us to have the sorts of patience and dependence on God that farmers do. 
Yeah. So in the context of where Mark is, that fits very well. Now, you know, Jesus will use the language of business in other parables. Now, I don't, I don't know, if, I don't know if those show up in Mark, but I'm thinking like the parable of the talents, as it's often called, or the the parable of the minas. So there, there is an element. And again, I'm, I don't know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to put these things together as I'm talking. There, there's an element where there is, there's that work that does happen in the kingdom of God, for which business that that comparison is helpful, but that's not what yeah. Jesus is getting at here. And so he makes use of the language of farming. Yeah. 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 Well, and the parable of the talents is an interesting one relative to what we talked about um, a little bit uh, just a few minutes ago, because their laziness, it actually has a deeper root uh, in a certain false understanding of the master himself. Um, what's, What's interesting is that I, I think that agricultural stories predominate. And part of that, I think, is due to the background and the people Jesus is talking to. And part of it is, I think, due to an overarching understanding. And this is a little hard. It's not necessarily something you can reconcile, but it's something that you should know, is that when we're talking about human activity in the parables, business is a helpful analogy that's used just like you said, when we're talking about the divine realities that are happening in the kingdom of God, how it's established, what it's like, how it works, what the end is, the analogies are almost always agricultural. The Lord makes a vineyard, people enter into the labor, um, this, that, or the other thing. And so that I think farming sort of predominates over business uh, because, because it's a way that divine activity in the world is most often pictured. Whereas when we're comparing one person to another, you know, <laughs> diligence and the correct use of time, uh, is actually helpful, but all of my diligence is kind of nothing unless God gives the seed and, and the rain to water it, you know? So kind of on a, on a horizontal level, the business stuff is helpful. I think on a vertical level, uh, the farming analogies are best, and I don't know if it, would you would you say that's a pretty pretty good rule to look for when you encounter a farming or agricultural picture in the scriptures that you should be thinking first and foremost. This is going to describe God's activity in the world and in His kingdom. Yeah, even even in the case of the vineyard, um, the the issue there is that He's the master of the vineyard; the field belongs to Him. It's not, it's not his to do with as he wants. I mean, even the parable of the wheat and the weeds in Matthew, there's going to be non-divine activity because the angels are reapers, but they don't get to go into the field whenever they want. And so the idea of this all belonging to him and being his, his planting uh, is something that is tremendously significant. I mean, Paul can even talk, for instance, about his own business activity you know, for instance, to keep the Thessalonians from having to pay a bunch of money as soon as they become Christians and support him. So he's going to, he's at, Paul's actually a businessman himself. But when he talks about the divine reality of what's going on, like you said in 1 Corinthians 3, he talks in farming terms. And that's Paul, who doesn't know anything about farming right. based on his background, not a country boy. So. Right, right. And I mean, could we, uh, is it is it fair to even trace that like all the way back to the very beginning? God, God, 
planted a garden in Eden for the man. Yeah. I mean, you, you, this is a theme that you see really, and I suppose you could even, well, I've, I've done this before. You've, you've got the garden at the beginning of the scriptures there in Genesis. You get the garden that's in the end of the scriptures, and then there's a garden in the middle where where Christ is, is crucified and raised. Mary's looking for the gardener. That, yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. that's really a theme you see throughout God's word. It is. And even when, when, when God's cities are depicted, for instance, at the end of Ezekiel or the end of Revelation in these apocalyptic pictures of what the world will be like when it's all under the reign of God, even when it's a city and there's a lot of building going on and everything, there are still these very rural images of water flowing continuously and trees planted and, you know, the blessed man in Psalm one is not, you know, a really great building or a big bank account. The, the blessed man who meditates on the Lord's law day and night is a tree planted by streams of water. So there is something that even when the city is meant to be a city, when things are meant to be built up, even then there's something still very rural and garden like about it. So we've, we've talked a couple of times here about how this is a part of the experience of Jesus himself and of the people who are listening to him there in Mark chapter four, but rural life is not necessarily a part of the experience of a lot of people today. <laughs> I, I live in right. a small town and I, I like to garden in, in Texas. It's actually the time where if you're going to start your own tomato transplants, you start them inside right now. And so I've, I've got some seeds huh. sprouting. I know it, it, that may not seem right when you're in Fort Wayne, Indiana, but it's going to be time. To, <laughs> right. to, it's going to be time to plant outside soon in Texas, believe it or not. So I, I've got some seeds sprouting inside my house right now. And, and it, it is a wondrous thing to watch, as you already said. But for someone who doesn't have that experience, it, well, is there something that we've lost as we read the scriptures today, when this rural life, this agricultural life, isn't a part of our everyday experience? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think there is, very honestly. And this isn't even necessarily all that long ago that people, even in very large cities, would have backyard gardens. Um, it's part of why certain parts of our major cities look the way they do and the lots look the way they do so that people can garden. But I think that it's interesting that some of the, the thing that you brought up with, with growth in the word of the Lord, and we talked about children, is that there are certain experiences that are human experiences of intense labor, but also of intense dependence upon God. And raising children and also raising crops are both like that. I, I, I have to work really, 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 really hard. Uh, farm kids often have an amazing work ethic for that reason, because it's a lot like raising kids. You have a, there's a lot of work to do. But the growth is amazing and wondrous in both cases. And so if you don't have life experiences like that, I think you are missing out on something that, that was in Genesis 1 meant to be naturally human, even apart from sin, which would be having children bearing, you know, um, being fruitful and multiplying, and also cultivating the land. Uh, that's more Genesis 2, but they're both there. And those are both very human experiences of great labor, but also great reward that's solely due to the Lord. Yeah, both, both. I appreciate the way you connected those two things for us. We're going to pick up more of this on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We'll be right back. Please stick around. 
Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, January 29th. We're studying Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 34. We have the Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz with us. He serves as assistant professor of exegetical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Kuntz, prior to the break, we were talking about this agricultural image that Jesus puts out there very often in his parables. We see it throughout the scriptures in these contexts where we are being told about something that God is doing in this world, that he is the one active in his kingdom, and we receive it with patience and with joy. Jesus takes that all the way in this parable, this parable of the seed that is growing to the end, to the harvest. And we've talked about Old Testament imagery already, some of those connections that we can make. The harvest is, again, connected to this agricultural image. What is being communicated about the kingdom of God with this image of the harvest. Yeah, it's a lot like the wheat and the weeds in Matthew 13, because it shows you that when things are ready, then the end comes. So this is capturing in a very brief, a single sentence, both the fact of growth, wondrous growth, as we talked about, but also of his determination when things are ready. And uh, if you think about this, you realize that you as an individual human being don't see this. You don't see when the world is ready to end. Um, (laughs) A lot of human beings think they do, uh, but you don't. (laughs) Uh, The perspective here is the perspective of the sower, um, and he sees when things are ready. Um, And so what you're getting here is just a an understanding that the world will end, the harvest will be gathered in when he is ready to do so. So a couple of thoughts there. The matter of the harvest as an agricultural image is one of those that if you aren't familiar with agriculture, then you might lose something here. I I did my vicarage in Garden City, Kansas, in the middle of the amber waves of grain part of the country. And when the wheat is ready to harvest— you harvest it. I mean, that's that's the time. You go out and do that. And that sense of urgency, I think, is is being communicated here by Jesus with that. When the harvest comes, that's it. And I mean, when you think about Mark's gospel and just his urgency in telling it, I think that fits very nicely. And again, if, if you don't have that agricultural experience, you might miss something like that. Yep. Yeah, it, 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 has its, it makes its own demands. And I think that that sense of not being completely in control of the process is one that, like we talked about with, you know, not not knowing what it is to raise children or to raise crops, people sometimes are missing out on some of the meaning here. The harvest, like a child, makes its own demands upon you, and you have to respond. What's the... What's the force of this for those who are hearing then to to hear this this matter of the harvest? It's time. It's come. You don't know that the like I as you said, you might think you know that the world's ready to end, but Jesus is the only one. The Father knows that. What's the what's the force on that as hearers of this parable recognizing that? 
Well, think about how Jesus is saying this. He's talking in matter-of-fact terms. This is how it works, okay? Um, (laughs) This is the way that God is, okay? And once again, a parable, even indirectly, forces you to decide, do I believe this guy? You know, all of these things call for faith, because the only response uh, to them is to believe, or I suppose, on the other hand, not to believe. That's it, because Jesus is saying, I'm going to tell you how the world works, how God works in his world and and how it will end. Now, he doesn't give you a date. He doesn't say, well, it's going to be the year 1,127, but he, he says, when it's ready, then the harvest comes. That's it, you know? And uh, so all of these stories call for you either to listen to Jesus and to say, okay, I need to keep listening. As in Mark, I need to keep following this story. I need to follow what happens to this man. Or you say, no, this guy's crazy. I'm out of here. So I think that that also partly explains why when Jesus tells a bunch of parables or teaches a lot, especially in Matthew and John and big connected chunks, when that happens, there's always some kind of reaction afterward because people say, yeah, that's amazing. You're the Christ, the son of the living God, or I don't really know, you know, um, all of that calls for faith or on the other hand, unbelief. Jesus then tells the parable of the mustard seed, which we see in other synoptic gospels as well. We're in the land of agriculture here again, planting, gardening. So again, as we laid out earlier, we know we're going to be looking for how is God active? What is he doing for the sake of his kingdom, for the sake of sinners? But what are the distinctives of this parable that we should be noticing that give it a particular flavor? What's going to be the emphasis here with the mustard seed? Yeah, I think one thing to understand is that Jesus's language, as it often is, um, is hyperbolic. That is, it's a little exaggerated for the purpose of making something clear. And a lot of people get tripped up on Jesus saying that the mustard seed is the smallest of all the seeds upon earth. Jesus is not trying to make some sort of like, you know, biology conference (laughs) statement. Uh, with, you know, an attached, you know, Latin binomial for what this is, okay? And, but people do get tripped up by that. What he's trying to accentuate is the difference between how it began and how it will end. And he's taking something that everyone in his context knows is very small, which is the seed of a mustard plant, and he's talking about how that little thing gets very big. So, in the, in the first parable that we talked about, the wondrous thing was the growth, the fact of growth. Now the wondrous thing is what something that starts out very, very small can grow into and then accomplish. Um, and the, the idea of the smallness is just contained in, this is a mustard seed. You guys all know how small that is. And so they do. But the explanation of what's going on it really becomes clearer with a better understanding of what's happening in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. So you, talk, you talked earlier about Isaiah 55, the place to go to understand uh, what happens like in verse 32 when he finishes and says, so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade 
is to go to Ezekiel. Okay. I talked about it earlier regarding the temple with the amazing water flowing out of it. Um, but in Ezekiel 17, um, you get mention of a tree that uh, the birds of the air come and make their nests in. And so what you're getting in Ezekiel is a picture of uh, God's kingdom being restored as a kind of large flourishing tree. And this is something that will come up later in Ezekiel as well. And in both places you get, uh, off the top of my head, I think it's 23 or 33, I can't remember exactly, is the second image of the tree. But the point is that it's a place that birds can come and nest in. And uh, this, is, uh, this is kind of an interesting thing because the pre- people, ancient agricultural people, kind of know more about everyday nature than we do. I mean, we tend to teach our kids things about maybe dinosaurs or tigers or something, stuff that is really pretty abstract. Um, knowledge of birds is more helpful for everyday life. And the significance here on just an everyday level, the idea that the birds can come there is that that's a place that has sufficient water and shade for birds to live in. So it's a place that can become a home that started out as a very small thing. If you connect it up with Ezekiel, though, then you understand that there's more going on than just, oh, yeah, you know, it's nice when birds are around. What, what else is going on is that uh, birds pictured as all the nations of the earth in Ezekiel can come and make their home there. So this means that the kingdom of God is going to start out as a tiny, tiny, tiny thing, smaller than anything you can even think of. And then it's going to grow up into this large flourishing tree, and everyone will find a home there. And, and so there's something, there's something very beautiful, I think about this second story, because it's a story about growth that no one would suspect uh, in just the same way that practically nobody's going to suspect that the Gentiles will come into God's kingdom. But, but that is, in fact, the intention. With the, the, that theme of something that no one expects, which I think, you know, again, fits very well with what we've said so far about the agricultural pictures that we see in the scriptures. In the Old Testament, and I'm not not positive if it's there in Ezekiel 17, but when you think of trees in the Old Testament, it's the majestic cedars of Lebanon that really stand out, yep. these really big trees. The parable that Jesus chooses, he talks about a mustard tree, which mm-hmm. is certainly bigger than the seed from which it started. And as you said, you know that difference in the way it starts versus how big it gets, that's part of it. But compared to a cedar of Lebanon, a mustard tree is nothing. Is Is that... Is there something there, perhaps, considering, again, where Jesus is going in the Gospel of Mark, that you don't get him as the Son of God again until he dies on the cross, which doesn't seem—I mean, nobody's looking for that. They're not looking for right. for the Son of God on the cross. Is there something to—I mean, to try to connect yeah. some of those dots from cedars to a mustard tree and then to—it's the cross, finally. Well, yeah, because the whole—part of, part of what else is going on um, in addition to the, the straightforward teachings of each of the parables, it's, it's going to start small, it's going to get big. It's going to work because it's God's word, right? Besides these sort of relatively straightforward things we've been gleaning, there's also this fact that Jesus is preparing people to begin to expect what is unexpected. 
to begin to see things in the way that the cross makes you see things, which is upside down according to the world's standards. So that whole change, which is not so much on a, on a clear, rational level of, I told you A and B, repeat A and B back to me, right? That's part of his teaching, but also a change, not so much in what I say explicitly or what I know, but sort of how I look at things, my attitude maybe, but deeper than emotion. That is also being changed because even though it's going to turn out that almost nobody, certainly not in Mark, recognizes him for who he is at the right time, they flee away from him. Nonetheless, if they had been attending to the parables, they would have thought, this is a guy that often does things we didn't expect. <laughs> this is a kingdom that works in ways different from the kingdoms of the earth, etc." And so there is that being taught alongside because in the parables, you're constantly getting, it didn't work out the way people thought it did, but you know, that's how it was. Uh, but people have trouble picking up, not just on Jesus's explicit teachings, but also on the change of vision that he's trying to do with his disciples and with kind of anybody listening. With this parable, we've, we've been talking about how you know, Jesus is setting the stage for what he's doing and how you keep reading in the Gospel of Mark, and, and that's where he, he reveals and what's starting small here is. It at this moment in Galilee will grow as you get to ultimately the cross. So within the Gospel of Mark, that makes sense. When we were talking about the previous parable, you know, we were talking very easily as to how we see this in our lives as Christians today in terms of the growth in our own Christian faith, the way that the Word of God is proclaimed, and, and amazingly, according to God's promise, things happen. In terms of the kingdom of God today as we experience it, how does this grain of mustard seed growing into this large tree, how do we see that in the church today? Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, it's, it's because we, there's both the explicit thing and the implicit thing, right? The implicit thing is what I was talking about just now, which is the idea of beginning to expect the unexpected. That is taming your own expectations taking them less seriously maybe than you would otherwise, because you've learned by now, you have sufficient wisdom to know that your expectations are really not worth all that much in the kingdom of God. There's also the explicit sense that the kingdom of God is growing and growing and growing and growing, and the nations will find a home there. And that is a tremendously optimistic vision of God's kingdom that it is growing and growing, that temporary setbacks, shrinkages, uh, difficulties are not really finally an obstacle to what's happening here, that it is going to grow and grow, and then one day the harvest will come, or it's growing from very obscure, small beginnings into something that all the nations of the earth can someday find a home in. And so none of that is under my control, and none of that is working according to my expectation. And so that prepares me when I'm talking to any single human being to consider God's kingdom in terms of what is what might be unexpected in this person's life or my life, but also to think about my life as a Christian as a very small part of a basically positive, beautiful process of growth 
guided and given by God that will provide a home not only for my nation, but for every nation. And I think in, in that sense, then, a parable like this should provide us great strength at those moments when we are not seeing what our expectations would lead us to see, or we're not we're not seeing the right. reality that we think we should see at the moment, at those moments where the right. church does seem weak, but the the hymn, the the church sees her oppressed and the church is one found or the world sees her oppressed and the church is one foundation. When when you look at the church, you see you see the weakness that is there, a parable like this would strengthen us to stick with it, to stick with the kingdom of God and know that even though we don't see it happening in the way that we would expect, or if it's happening more slowly or in a mysterious way, God is in fact at work. And and that thing right. that you brought up with James, the patience, be patient. He is at work. The harvest will come. He will fulfill his promise. Right. Exactly. Yeah, totally. So Pastor, or, Pastor Kuntz, then Jesus concludes here with his string of parables in Mark with verses 33 and 34. Mark finishes the account. He says, with many such parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. What, what does that mean? Because we've we've been a, it in in Mark. There's a little bit of, well, I mean, you get that verse in verse 12 where Jesus talks about that through the parables they'll see but not perceive, and they'll hear but not understand. Here he says, Mark says that they're able to hear. What does that What does that mean here at the end of this this section? Yeah, and this is very similar. Uh, Jesus not only uses images from the prophets, as we've talked about with Isaiah 55 and uh, parts of Ezekiel, but he also sounds like a prophet when he's Mm -hmm. proclaiming the parable. Because you get things like this, especially in Jeremiah. Uh, You get a message, thus saith the Lord, I will not relent from bringing disaster upon this unfaithful people, this wicked people. Uh, But then, a couple chapters later, uh, if they should turn from their sin, they will live. Mm. So you get categorical pronouncements of judgment upon unbelief and sin, and categorical pronouncements of the Lord's desire to heal his broken people when they turn from their sin. And so th- this is very similar, but it's just in cognitive terms instead of simply in terms of their sin. So earlier in the chapter, you have, uh, I teach them, uh, those outside, everything in parables. Um, and that is, a, there is a sort of blindness that they have, that those who are not his disciples have. Maybe they can pick up on the parable, but they don't know who, who's telling it or, or, or what his authority is or something, right? It's mo- it, they know more than someone that never heard the parable but they don't understand. And so there's a distinction here between getting the parable and understanding. And the understanding comes with the explanation that here Mark records. He doesn't record Jesus's explanation the way he did for the parable of the sower. But there is a difference between hearing it and saying, okay, you know, I know that, or I know that Bible story versus understanding it. And that difference between hearing and understanding is something that I think you see really throughout all the Gospels, because there are plenty of people who hear Jesus, there are fewer who understand. 
with a with the two things about the parables there in verses 11 and 12 and then verse 33 as you're drawing out some of the examples from the prophets i mean i i think that one of the examples that i thought of was was jonah i think fits pretty well into this too i mean jonah comes along with a pretty strong sermon and they repent and god relents that god is right. is always looking to show his mercy. It, it's in Ezekiel where he says, I do not desire the death of the sinner, but that he would turn right. and, and live. And so it, you always have the both. I, I also thought of, and I, I can't remember where it is. I'm not sure if it's in Mark. I believe it's both in Matthew and Luke where Jesus weeps over Jerusalem and he, he laments mm-hmm. over Jerusalem and how he has this great desire to gather his people as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And yet they would not. And he, he pronounces that judgment, that that both of those things are spoken together. Maybe can we say it in, in more dogmatic terms that God does his alien work of of speaking the law and, and judgment in order to do his proper work of of salvation. And that's we're seeing both things at play here in Mark four as well. Yeah, no question. And, and he means it when he says they will die in their sin. He also means it when he provides a means of escape from your sin and unbelief. And uh, that extends to every part of being human, both your will, but also, in this case, your intellect, right? Did you grasp it? Yes, I understood the story you told. Can you tell me what it means? No. And that distinction between hearing the thing, and it goes in one ear and out the other, versus I hear it, and I kind of think about it. You know, Luke narrates this several times with the mother of Jesus. She, she doesn't necessarily grasp everything at once, but she stores up his words in her heart, and then she meditates on them, and then you can see the understanding growing. So that difference between those outside and disciples is that the disciples are getting the time and the attention, and most of all, the explanation of what the kingdom is and how it's working that we don't always see with every parable. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, verse 34, yeah, he did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. I, you, you wish Mark would have written those down for us. <laughs> well, yeah, Mark is always doing stuff like that. Like, he's always saying, his teaching was amazing and everyone was amazed, but then he doesn't tell you what it was, you know? So Mark Mark is, I think of him, he's, he's like a, uh, he's like a, a film director, who doesn't provide explanations. He just kind of like shows you plot points and you have to be a little sharper to put together. Okay. Why am I seeing this where four minutes ago I saw this other thing? Um, because he's not going to hold your hand and Mark is like that. And he's really interested in what effect things have, which is why I think when he talks about teaching, he's more interested in how people react than necessarily what the content of it all was. Mm. And, and not to get too far afield from today's text, but you know this one ends with privately Jesus is explaining everything to his disciples. By the end of the next text, though, they're still going to be asking the question, "Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him?" So within the the narrative of Mark, the disciples, yeah, they're getting this explanation, but it's not clicking for them yet either. Not not fully. There's still that process of well, growth that that is happening yeah. that Jesus has described in these very parables. Yeah, because the picture of a disciple in Mark is a lot like the father whose son is thrown sometimes into fire, sometimes into boiling water by a demon. And because the father can say very clearly in Mark, 
uniquely, I believe, help my unbelief. And that line running brightly, uh, but terrifyingly inside the human soul between faith and unbelief, between righteousness and sin, that line is drawn by Mark also inside the disciples. So there is a, there, there is a reality, you know, in 4, 11, and 12 to those outside. There is a difference between the church and the world, but also within the church, there is a line inside the human soul that is drawn between things that are good and things that are evil, and that's inside you as well as between the church and the world. So the, the church is not a place of perfect people. It is a, a place of people who are saint and sinner at the same time. We've got just under three minutes here on the morning, Dr. Coons. Help us to, to wrap things up, point us to Christ from this text. Yeah, the parables are really something to chew on, I think, and not to just quickly pass by. There's a small number of verses we've done this morning. Don't be confused by that. Don't think that they're unimportant because they're few in number. These are things to think about as you're going about your day, maybe as you are gardening, and to think about how God's creation reflects and teaches on some of the things that in the case of birds or plants or seed or growth or harvest, Jesus is picking up and showing to you not just as realities within creation, but realities also within the plan of our redemption. There are, in addition to those kind of conscious surface things in the story, details, elements, nouns that you can kind of look at over and over again. There are, in addition to that, those implicit things that we've talked about, things that Jesus communicates without saying them, even as we read the text thousands of years later, such as learn to expect what is unexpected, learn to depend upon God. And those kinds of things we can see both in our lives with our children. We talked about, Paul talks about it in terms of planting churches in 1 Corinthians 3. But we can also see those things, most of all, in the death and resurrection of Jesus. There, a seed is planted that everyone presumes is unfruitful, and it grows up, and it becomes something that the world never expected, which is a man who has defeated death. So when you're looking at all of these parables, they are at the same time about and drawn from everyday life in God's kingdom with images and experiences drawn from God's creation. They're also at the same time as they are about life as a Christian, life in the church. They're also, of course, about the head of that church, the one who gives life to the whole body, Christ. And so they're also about his life and about how unexpected, but at the same time glorious, his work is, and how the cross has nothing that is its like in foliage or blossom, like we sing uh, on Good Friday, sing my tongue the glorious battle. That cross is unexpectedly fruitful, but in it, the nations find their healing, and God himself raises it up. The Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz serves as Assistant Professor of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, helping us this morning with Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 34. Dr. Kuntz, thanks for being our guest today. Hey, it was my pleasure. Thank you. 
I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have a question about today's text, if you've got a question about the gospel according to St. Mark, we would love to hear from you. Send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We'd love to hear from our listeners here on Sharper Iron. Thanks for listening. Look forward to talking to you next week.